Though still relatively new, the voluntary carbon credit market is currently estimated at $2 billion a year U.S. and growing. And regulatory agencies have certainly taken notice, and they're looking for bad actors. On June 20th, 2023, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission's, that's the CFTC, whistleblower office issued a rare solicitation for tips relating to misconduct in the carbon markets. So given this aggressive orientation by the CFTC, what are market participants to do? Jones Day Partners' Josh Sterling and Howard Simon are here to sort it out. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks. Based in Washington, Josh Sterling is a partner in Jones Day's financial markets practice. He's a recognized leader in commodities and derivatives law, helping banks, fintechs, corporations, and several of the world's largest trading platforms successfully address enforcement, regulatory, and transactional matters of strategic importance to their businesses. Josh's practical advice to clients is informed by his experience as director of the CFTC's Market Participants Division. And if you're a regular listener, you know that Josh is a frequent and popular contributor to Jones Day Talks. And partner Howard Sidman is based in Jones Day's New York office. He is the deputy chair of environmental, social, and governance, that's ESG, at Jones Day and advises clients on ESG litigation and risk issues. Howard represents financial institutions and other companies in ESG-related investigations and complex commercial disputes. Howard also counsels clients on risk issues related to energy transition, green bonds, and sustainability-linked loans. Beyond his work in ESG matters and on behalf of financial institutions, Howard's civil litigation experience includes securities class actions, complex commercial class actions, and contract disputes. Josh, Howard, thanks for being here today. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Okay, let's dive right in, and let's go to Josh first. On June 20th, the CFTC issued a solicitation for whistleblower tips relating to bad behavior in the carbon markets. Josh, this sounds unusual, and it sounds aggressive, and it sounds serious. For what exactly is the CFTC's enforcement division looking? Well, thanks for that, Dave. It's great to be back, and it's great to be on here with Howard talking about these issues that are very important to our clients. It is irregular. I believe it's unprecedented for the CFTC's whistleblower office to go out and say, hey, bring us your tips, complaints, and referrals for X, you know, a specific issue. The CFTC, like other market regulators, is always looking for cases of market abuse or frauds, you know, involving particularly vulnerable populations, retirees, people on military bases abroad, things like that. But for them to go out and say, hey, in this developing, largely institutional marketplace, please come to us if you have information about possible wrongdoing. It's not something I've seen. It suggests to me that obviously the enforcement division at the CFTC, which has a very close working relationship with the whistleblower office, is trying to find cases. When the CFTC brings market cases, a lot of times they can do it from data that they have about markets that's reported into the government, that's done on government-regulated exchanges. Carbon markets are not regulated by the CFTC, and so they don't get data about them. And so two sources for a regulated market, among many others, are market data and tips. Here, in this fairly unregulated market, you know they're looking at and substantially relying on tips. So that's, that's what's going on here. And, and I think firms would be wise to recognize that this is an avenue where the CTC is going to try and get after them in the carbon markets. 
Sure. And I, I, I'm aware, and we're all aware, this sort of thing goes on, you know, SEC, IRS, certainly CFTC. But you mentioned you've not seen this in your face before, like, hey, whistleblowers, come find us. This is unusual, right? It's totally unusual. The CFTC has been an early mover on climate and financial services regulation. While Chairman Benham at the CFTC was a commissioner, he, he pushed out a a report on you know climate risk in the financial system. I would guess that that was very helpful to his case to become the, the chairman in addition to the many other things that he's done when he was a commissioner. And then they've convened two separate market meetings, one to happen later in July here of 23 for voluntary carbon markets. They've created a climate risk unit largely run by the chairman's office to look at this market. And I think they're concerned about it because it's very large, it's growing. They can regulate a derivative on sort of a carbon emissions credit or a carbon allowance or something like that, Mm -hmm. but they can't actually regulate a market in the credit itself. You can buy it, sell it, trade it. We've written even about tax credits under the Inflation Reduction Act that people can buy, sell, and trade pretty freely. All that activity in something that's ostensibly a, quote, commodity is something the CTC can only police for fraud and manipulation. They can't police it like they police futures and swaps on a derivatives exchange. And so they're a little concerned that there's this commodity market, bad things are happening, and it's important to the administration's climate transition goals. And they're sitting in the dark, and they might be looked at as the responsible party if something bad happens in that market that, that you know calls into question its purpose and bona fides. Any idea, Josh, what might have prompted this sort of very aggressive stance by the CFTC? I mean, you're hearing things, or are they just suspicious that they might not know what they don't know? Right. I think it's a little bit of everything. Yeah. They've definitely focused a lot on renewables, climate transition, things like that. And the question really is, well, okay, what can the CFTC do as a derivatives market regulator about climate transition? I mm. can think of some things, which I won't mention here. I don't know how how industry friendly they would be. Um, But one thing you can always do is bring a case and never forget that these agencies like to present themselves first and foremost as law enforcement agencies. I don't know what the FBI says about that. If they ever read those press releases, do you have handcuffs? Ouch. They don't. Um, I checked when I got there and they're always happy to do that. And it's, it's very, well, it's not easy. It's relatively easier to bring a case uh, even when you have the option of writing a rule and getting a rule passed with a majority of the commission. So it's just something that's also natural for an agency to do. Well, what authority do we have? Oh, fraud manipulation. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's go look for that. Maybe Congress will give us the power to write some rules someday. Okay. Okay. Let's go over to Howard Sidman. Hey, Howard, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having oh, me, Dave. Well, yeah. Well, we were talking before we started this program. I thought we'd worked on a podcast before, but apparently not. So welcome. And I, I hope you enjoy being here and I'm, I'm sure we'll have you back at some point. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. No doubt. No doubt. Well, let's talk. And Josh started to veer into it a little bit, but can we talk for a second about the specific types of misconduct that might come up? Yeah, yeah, sure. First, let's take a step back, though, at, at a, you know, at a very sure. high level. So I'm, one of my functions at the firm is deputy director for ESG, but I'm also a financial mm-hmm. markets litigator in, in our financial markets group. You know, one of the things we've been talking about with our clients for the last two or three years are issues relating to carbon offsets in the carbon offset market. And that's why when Josh for this alert to me, I thought it raised significant issues like the ones that Josh had already identified. This is real risk out there, as you mentioned, and as Josh sort of supported, that this is a unique approach from an agency like the CFTC. 
you know, you talk about the, the types of misconduct that might come up. I think the, there's sort of two considerations here that we need to think about. One is, what does the CFTC say, right? They're looking for manipulative and wash mm-hmm, trading, mm-hmm. right? Fraud in the underlying spot markets related to sort of illusory or ghost credits listed on carbon market registries. They're looking at double counting or other fraud related to carbon credits. And this is all really from the alert itself. This is not me talking. This is the CFTC talking. They're looking at fraudulent statements relating to material terms of of carbon credit, right? right? Looking at not just sort of the nature of the the credit, but the quantity, the additionality, the project type, methodology Mm -hmm. in substantiating an emissions claim, the environmental benefits, the permanence or duration, the buffer pool, also, manipulation of the tokenized carbon markets. So it's a lot yeah. of stuff. There's the CFTC risk, and then there's a the follow-on risk itself. But what we're seeing here is there's a lot of area for potential misconduct here. And all the stuff we've been talking about with clients for, for years now, the risk of double counting, the risk of aged or in, ineffective carbon offsets, those are things that the CFTC has identified previously, but now they're really putting a finer point on it. And then we have sort of the second level risk, which is sort of the follow-on risk. If there is an investigation or if there is an enforcement claim brought by the CFTC, look, so many businesses have announced net zero or emission reduction targets for the short term and the long term. And they're doing so for, you know, for really valid business reasons. And if for some reason there's indication that offsets are faulty, then it is possible that especially public companies making these statements, could face claims by investors for misrepresentation. Mm. You could potentially face follow-on investigations by the SEC for misrepresentation. This is a lot to unpack. Secondly, yes, and there's more (laughs) uh, to unpack, possibly. Uh, Also, if you're selling these offsets in the market, right, and then someone else buys them and relies on them for their own statements about what the, the quality and the nature of the carbon offsets and what they're doing to their cutting emissions targets. The seller could face liability for breach of contract or fraud if the offsets themselves wind up being different than how you describe them. Howard, great, great summation of what's going on here. This is broader and bigger than I thought. Josh, am I wrong? This is an obvious rabbit heightened enforcement action. They're looking for bad conduct. Well, absolutely. They're definitely looking for fraud or manipulation. So sort of disrupting the ability of the market to achieve a true mm-hmm. price. That's that's really what it is. Bottom of it all, that's what it is. Is a corollary to that what representations people in these markets make about either the credits or the quality of their diligence of credits, the provenance of the credits, things like that are all at issue and they're equally at issue in litigation. Mm-hmm. Litigation over what they say publicly, particularly if they're a, a public company. And, you know, then the securities laws are available sure. to sue for fraud too. The CFTC's principal fraud rule is basically modeled after the securities law rule 10b-5. And so you can think of the same things just about, you know, disclosures and so forth. But there is a substantial risk of litigation. Mm-hmm. You know, if you happen to see a fact pattern in a government settlement, it is often a thing that can be picked up on by plaintiff's attorneys. And, you know, independent of that, obviously there's a lot of interest by plaintiff's attorneys and enforcing in these areas. There's a lot of interest, let's put it that way, by state attorneys general. I haven't really thought this through as much as I could have, but certainly state attorneys general have authority to sue under the Commodity Exchange Act as well. So yes, any market where there's a lot of interest and a lot of money flowing in and flowing in quickly, 
is an area that is susceptible to enforcement and litigation risk. In that connection, if people aren't thinking about whistleblower risk, perhaps they should be because that's a that's a risk really in any industry and particularly where you have a regulator with a whistleblower office. Right, right. Josh, was this expected or should we expect something like this? It's getting to be higher and higher profile. You've got agencies watching this. Is this unusual? It's a new and growing market. Is this typical? Uh, if I were to draw a comparison on the spot in terms of of interest and in how you might look at this, you know, as a government regulator who on average sort of knows what they mm. read in the news clips every morning and they're not in the industry as much as perhaps they they should yeah. be. You might say, well, you know, there was all this run up about crypto and people were really excited about it. There are all these conferences. It was really exciting. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there were some serious problems in that market. We wouldn't want to have that happen again. And I can't say that that's on the mind of, of everyone, but usually when something bad happens in one market, it becomes a thing people think about or refer to in the future in other sure. markets. And so I know when I was in government and we were trying to pass some rules that were not loved by every member of the commission, as well-intentioned as they were, they would put in front of us, often in open meetings, well, what about what happened with the London Whale? Or yeah. what, what about what happened with Lehman Brothers? And you'd say, well, if ifs and buts. But, you know, so people like to go back to the things they know and project in the future. And, and you know, when you do that in an enforcement context, it can be quite volatile. And yeah. then that, that big case becomes the next case that people refer mm -hmm. to 5, 10, 20 years later. So, yeah. Well, you bring that frame of reference with you. Hey, Howard, I apologize. I think I stepped on you. You had a remark or you were going to reply to something Josh said a couple of seconds ago. Oh, yeah. I was just going to talk about some further litigation risks. You know, the, the one area that I did not mention in response to your first question was sort of mm. the overall area of greenwashing, which I think has obviously been a topic that I know you've covered on these podcasts in the past, and it's right. greenwashing is one of the most prevalent types of ESG-related claims that we're seeing. And I think when you talk about enforcement or you know whistleblowers focused on enforcement of manipulation of markets or you know fraud in the markets, mm -hmm. and then and you have businesses, again, using these offsets to, to talk about how what they're doing to in, improve their emissions or their emissions profile, you have a straightforward potential approach that could lead to greenwashing claims. I'm not saying that they exist by, by definition, but there's certainly the, the element of risk out there for greenwashing claims. And then I also wanted to mention Josh's point on the state AGs is right on. We are in the process of representing a number of uh, uh, financial institutions in connection with uh, AG claims relating to ESG-related issues and, and others. And we know just from public reports that the AGs and other state officers are very, very focused on ESG-related issues in the market and won't hesitate to to investigate if they see a wrongdoing, a potential wrongdoing. Sure, sure. Hey, Howard, brilliant segue into my next question that was going to go to you, actually. Let's talk about why this should matter to clients. Sure. Whistleblower activities generally and absolutely lead to significant enforcement actions. So clients need to be on high alert, correct? Absolutely. They couldn't have said it better myself, but I'll say it again. Whistleblower reports lead to enforcement. That's just the headline here, right? Mm -hmm. um, and Josh told me this before this morning. He said that approximately half the CFTC's annual enforcement docket stems from whistleblower reports. 
half. That seems heavy to me, but yeah, I believe it. Yeah, half. exactly. Maybe because right. the nature of the markets are such that mm. they're more private and they're harder to regulate. The other piece of this is this is not insubstantial. These are, the rewards are often several million dollars. Yeah. Josh also told me that the highest award to date was in 2021 for $200 million relating to a single whistleblower. So the financial incentives for tipping are real. That's the most important piece. Carbon market practices vary because there's not a heavily regulated market market right now. Market practices are continuing to evolve. And when you have a situation where you have sort of newness, but mm-hmm. also significant uncertainty, that creates risk because yeah. really financial institutions or others, right? Not just financial institutions, anybody who's involved in these markets, if they know the rules, they can structure their conduct accordingly. You can you can take a cost benefit analysis and say, all right, here are the rules, here's what we're doing. We think we're, we're compliant to those rules. But where market practices and the rules and regulations are uncertain, right? That creates further risk because you don't know right. what necessarily is market practice and what could be focused on by the CFTC. Absolutely. I mean, so Howard, a well-intentioned firm could find itself in trouble not knowing, right? This is so new. Correct. That's absolutely right. And again, newness by itself is not a problem, but it's really the newness coupled by a lack of uncertainty into how these markets are being regulated. What are the rules, right? Again, you can inform your leaders and make informed business decisions based on if you know the rules. Mm-hmm. If you don't know mm-hmm. the rules or there's uncertainty about the rules, that creates more risk. Absolutely. Well, Josh, let's pick up on Howard's point. I mean, established firms, financial service companies or whatever, they've got playbooks. And, and, and Josh, thanks for those notes. That was your term, not mine. But they know how to stay out of trouble. But you've got new entries, perhaps, or people that are newer to the market. Even established firms might, might not be that familiar with this territory. So there's a whole new level. That this is We're getting some territory here that's sort of uncharted. You've got to be extra careful. Well, I think that's right. In our experience, we have seen even established firms when they're getting into new markets and they create a new entity or a new business unit with subject matter experts who might not be thinking of the sort of whole set of rules yeah. and, and practices that a, a financial institution has in that specific moment. They might not give regard to how the firm can be protected in that setting. And certainly newer firms would be more at risk of that. And you know, not to have buried the lead, but the financial incentives for whistleblowing under the federal framework is pretty substantial. If you provide yeah. unique information and a tip complaint or referral, and they even give you a form to fill out, plaintiff's lawyers will help you do it. <laughs> uh, and it leads to you know an award of a million bucks or more in a settlement or a court decision. You're entitled to up to 30% of that award. Mm-hmm. So by the way, that $200 million award uh, darn near bankrupted the, the settlement fund. So it was unusual, but the financial incentives are real. But what we found in government, my understanding, and I've come to understand this from talking to our employment law colleagues here, is that people typically blow the whistle. Yeah, the money is good. But when they feel like they're not being taken seriously or like they're the one stand up guy or mm-hmm. lady, the organization. And there's a lot of ways to deal with that. It can be really simple. I was at a compliance training for an energy company a couple of weeks ago, and it started out with a very senior executive addressing an audience of 150 people about what the lawyers say is important. You've got mm-hmm. to follow the law. And even that can make people feel like if they've got a problem, they can blow the whistle, but they can do it inside the building. And, mm-hmm. you know, another thing, and this is probably a whole other podcast, is you know, once you do have a whistleblower, there are all sorts of rules about how you can and can't treat them. 
I'm sure California oh. and New York are two states where they're probably pretty stringent. Sure. Disinviting someone from a regular meeting where confidential information is shared can be problematic if that person's a whistleblower and you knew it. So yeah. even things that would seem logical, you shouldn't be doing. So there are real financial incentives, but often there's a whole whole other set of incentives that impel people to call a government and involve a plaintiff's lawyer to do it. You know, I'm, I'm going to go off, off script for a minute here or off outline, Josh, but it sounds like this isn't just uh, a financial markets practice thing for Jones Day or an ESG team-related thing. This can cross practices. These things get complicated. You might end up bringing people in from all over a, a firm. Well, that's exactly right. For some clients, you know, we've we've involved our employment law colleagues right out of the gate. Yeah. You know, certainly if there's an investigation or potential for investigation, we involve folks from those practices within the firm. Working with Howard for some of our financial services clients, you know, we have our wonderful appellate lawyers involved in doing right. some pretty intensive writing about what in the heck does the state statute really mean anyway? And how could we yeah. protect ourselves or challenge it someday? So there's a lot of a lot this can throw off. And so when I say, hey, the CFTC, check out this press release, the CFTC is looking for whistleblowers in the carbon markets. Sure, you can get rung up under the Commodity Exchange Act, but it's part of a broader mm -hmm. theme, which is you can get rung up anyway in a market where there's probably some hot money that's not, not as aware of what's going on as they should be. Sure, sure. You need a lot of smart people in the room to handle something like this, I'm sure. Hey, Howard, let's, okay, we've talked about potentially what could happen, what, what would be bad. Let's talk about being proactive and staying out of trouble because that's what everybody wants. What should a market participant do given the more than likely ramped up enforcement that's coming? Yeah, sure. There's a few things, right? One is, most important thing is to understand what you're doing, mm -hmm. right, and how you're doing it. Sometimes we've seen instances where the legal function in a business is different or separated from the day-to-day -day business function, right? right? And so really it's important for the legal function to understand and really assess whether the business practices of a company uh, in connection with carbon markets are consistent with the CFTC requirements, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one of the ways you can do that is to partner with outside counsel. We've got folks like Josh here who, who understand these requirements very, very well and folks on his team who can provide that overview, that insight for you. The second thing, again, is part of that is to do an internal review of your practices to make sure that you understand, again, from a legal perspective and a business perspective, what you're doing and what you're not doing. Mm -hmm. Because of this new area, because of the developing interest, because of the, really, frankly, the excitement, there may be folks you know, within your organization who are getting out over their skis in the sense of doing things or pushing the envelope in terms of it goes beyond sort of what you've done in the past because of, again, the newness of this area. And then on the whistleblower side, it's really important to develop or review, if you have them already, your current whistleblower practices or policies for carbon market activities or activities generally, because an ounce of prevention can be better than a pound of cure, right? right. And you want to make sure that you know what your current if you have them, whistleblower policies are. And if you don't have them, I think you should think about developing some. Sounds to me like if you're involved in these markets, you don't have a policy dealing with the potential of a whistleblower coming forward. If something goes wrong or someone's done something wrong, even if you don't know it, that is so important. And I, if, no, if nothing else, I hope people listening hear that, right? Absolutely right. I mean, that will be my takeaway, I think. You know, understanding what you're doing and what you're yeah. not doing so important sure. like like everything else right i mean yeah. it's just very very important business is to understand their process their policies and their procedures I, uh, I think that's exactly right howard josh howard 
we're going to leave it right there. Thanks so much for your time today. I'm sure we're going to talk about more very soon. Thanks for coming. You can find complete bio and contact information for Josh Sterling and Howard Simon at jonesday.com. While you're there, visit our insights page where you'll find additional podcasts, publications, videos, newsletters, and other topical, valuable content. Subscribe to Jones Day at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcast. Jones Day Talks is produced by Tom Condolis. As always, we appreciate your taking some time to listen. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.